0: I did forget, though. It is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's! Did not forget for my family. Just that was this morning, and it's been a bit. So, uh, just for clarification's sake, uh, we are tonight, um, for sure tonight. Uh, likely next week, we're gonna we're gonna come back and a uh, little bit of like a systematic theology class. And so we're gonna kind of bounce around, and I'm gonna walk you through. Now that we have essentially made it through. <clears throat> All of Revelation between Sundays and Wednesdays, we got a couple more Sundays to close out. Looking at the New Heaven and New Earth, uh, that would be the eternal state what, where we will be for eternity. Uh, want us to come back and kind of relook at just some overview of of end times with with the framework we now have, walking from Revelation. So let me remind you a couple key terms. And next week I will have a a note sheet for you with a lot of the key stuff on it. As I was continuing to get finished today. Um, I, 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 what I have, I, I'm not comfortable giving you it to take home yet. I think it might mess you up more than it'd help you because uh, it's in my note form currently. But let me remind you some important terms. One, uh, the term church age. Church age. Let me pick out my marker here. Church age. It's up here. This is... A cross. You can't see the red cross? All right, let's see what else I can find up here. Let's be artistically accurate and see if brown works better. How's that? No. All the blacks are dry, so I can't use the black marker. How's that? Nothing? Here's the point. What you need to know is right here, there's a cross. (laughs) Anybody got an idea what this represents? Be Jesus' first coming, His death, His resurrection. This is when Jesus comes the first time. Then we're going to draw. This is a brown line. For those of you in the back, I will get bold new black markers for the future. This is a timeline. This is all the years since Jesus to today. We call that the church age, the age of the church. Uh, We live after Jesus' first coming. We have seen the mystery of the gospel made clear and revealed to us. We now know salvation is by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, we live... Whoa, that's really bold. I just didn't use the right pen here. We live in the church age. So if you hear me use the term church age or if you read any books, the church age, it's Acts 1 until right now. And it'll be tomorrow if we wake up and we're still going tomorrow. Uh, You'll remember the term eschatology it's the study of final things, study of the end times. So when we're talking theology, when you hear me use the term eschatology, or I might slip up and say the eschaton, it just means the end times, the study of end times. In addition, uh, there's a couple other terms to, uh, to remind you. The term eternal state, and I'll use that a lot these next couple Sundays. What we mean by the eternal state is that final place where everyone ends up for all eternity. So there's two places for the eternal state. For those in Christ, there is the new heaven and new earth. For those not in Christ, there is the lake of fire. That is the final permanent. Both of those represent the final permanent expression and residence for every uh, being in all of creation depending on their response to Christ, the eternal state. So for instance, if I'm talking about right now somebody dies and they go to heaven or they go to hell, we're not talking about the eternal state. We're talking about the temporary state because there's coming that time. That's eternal state. And then lastly, and I'll come back to the other term here in a little bit. So I want to remind now that we've walked through Revelation, remember there are four When it comes to, if you try to categorize, let's let's look at all the pastors and theologians the way when a person opens up the book of Revelation, the way that they read it, and 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 the guiding principles through which they interpret and understand it. There's essentially four broad, four broad categories of how people understand. We've got the preterist. And these are not in these are these are in the order from the final one will be the one where I land. The others I'm teasing you beforehand. But these all exist. All right. They're not in alphabetical order. They're not in historical order. They're just in my order. There's the preterist view. Here's the idea behind the preterist view. The preterist view looks at Revelation and interprets the entire book, everything in it, uh, with exception of maybe the final chapters, as all having been fulfilled in the days of John's writing. So it looks at it all from a literal historical vantage point and it sees all of its fulfillment back in the first century or right after the first century in the lifetime of those seven churches that are, being, that are being written to. So all of the prophecy, all of the symbolism, it all goes back to things in that time. Now the strength of that is that letter was written to real people in a real time with a real message through what they were living to. And so there is a part of that that we take. The the major con of that is when you read through Revelation, it's really hard to find fulfillment of everything you read in Revelation back in the first century. You really can't do it without stretching some things. That's the preterist view. Then we've got what we call the historicist view. The historicist view. Here's the difference of the historicist view. If the preterist view looks at everything is happening in the, the lifetime of those churches mentioned, the historicist view looks at all of the prophecy and symbolism and finds its explanation in the history of the church from that time to some point whenever, you know, and there's varying opinions of where that is to some point. In church history. So it's still looking for tangible historical um, explanations. give you an example, uh, in, in most historicist views, the trumpet judgments are not something that has yet to happen. Instead, it's describing the period of time that begins with the Goths attacking the Western Roman Empire and ends almost a thousand years later with the Turks attacking the Eastern Roman Empire it's finding fulfillment in those ways there is the what we call the idealist view the idealist view is more concerned at looking and reading revelation from the standpoint from a spiritual standpoint so it's going to put much more emphasis on things being symbolic and on those things representing and communicating timeless spiritual truths that are applicable to any believer in any age. So for instance, the truth is the truth is, uh, the, the truth is um, Christ is victorious over Satan. And so while you suffer right now in the middle of the Middle Ages or while you suffer right now in the 21st century, you can take hope Christ triumphs over Satan. And that's, that's the point of Revelation 12, not trying to identify when in history did this happen, what's past, what's future, on down the line, the idealist view. And then last, and this is where uh, certainly where I fall, certainly where probably most of us are familiar with as terms of a general camp, be the futurist view, which comes to Revelation and recognizes and intends to, to, to interpret Revelation in a uh, highly literal manner. Seeing the prophecy is primarily referring to future events that are at the end of time. Now, in reality, the the real truth is if we're going to be fair in how we've walked through Revelation, we would be primarily futurist, but we would also have aspects of the others. Different ways. Here's why I bring this to you. It's not to linger here long, but to say when you're reading and interacting with people who write or preach or deal with in times, what we all need to understand is, especially with Revelation, there's going to be a general framework they're coming from, whether they realize it or not. Now, I think generally speaking, if you just walk through the text and let the text speak for itself and do the best you can, allowing the text to speak for itself and letting Scripture interpret Scripture, I think you're going to be primarily a futurist that recognizes there's some aspects of these things that come into play. We understand these because these impact the next set of things that we talk about. So here comes the next question. It's not just how do we view the end times in these four categories. How do we view Revelation? It now comes. And this is what you'll, in this lingo, if you're listening to theology people talk and they start using end times lingo, you're going to hear stuff like this. Are you a historic premillennialist post-trib? Or are you a, a amillennial midrath? What on earth is that? Okay, there's two different things being said. The first is going to be post-millennial, amillennial, premillennial, and that's referencing the question of what do we do with the 1,000 years mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10? That's the first question. Pre-trib, pre-raft, mid-trib, post-trib, that's asking the question, when does Jesus come back for the church, for His people? Typically, we would use the term, most of us will, will use the term as we think of that as rapture. We'll dive more into that when we get there. But those, those are what the two, the two different things are. You've got what is, how do we understand the thousand years, and how we answer that question will directly dictate in some ways how we then, what options we have about the rapture. So if you'll turn your Bibles back with me, Revelation chapter 20... And in the, the four views of how people interpret Revelation, you may find someone who is a preterist, who is an they're going to have a view of the millennium. Typically speaking, if you're in one of these first three views, you're likely going to lean towards being an amillennialist. I'll tell you what that is in a second, but you might there might there's some variety. So just understand that. How do we understand? Look look with me. Revelation 20. Uh, John writes and he says, "I saw an angel coming down from heaven." "'holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. "'He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, "'who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. "'He threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him, "'so he would not deceive the nations any longer "'until the thousand years were complete. "'After these things he must be released for a short time. "'Then I saw thrones, and those who were supposed to sit on them, "'sitting on them, and judgment was given to them.' I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image or received the mark on their forehead and hand, and they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years." When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. And then it goes from there. Okay, in seven verses, a thousand years has been mentioned six times. Now, when we do stuff like how to read your Bible, one of the things we teach is you pay attention to things that are emphasized. I would say six times in seven verses would qualify for emphasized. So the question is, what do we do with this thousand years? The context of this, if you'll remember, is in Revelation 19... The heavens part and Jesus comes back. The second coming. For the second coming, I'm just going to draw a big down arrow. This is the second coming on our timeline here. Here's the second coming. Jesus returns. He returns Takes out the Antichrist and the false prophet, throws them in the lake of fire. Their armies he kills. And then it says that Satan is thrown into the abyss. And then you have this thousand years. What do we make of this thousand years? Now, there are primarily three general categories for what to do with this thousand years. The first is what we would call post-millennialism, post-millennium. Now, how do you read that? means that Jesus comes back post the millennium. Now, in my case, even saying it out loud, I go, well, that doesn't make sense for what I just read (laughs) out of the text. The millennium comes after... But here's how it flows. Post-millennialism, the idea is that the reign, Christ's millennial reign, that the thousand years, it's not literal, it is symbolic for a long period of time. And it's a long period of time where Jesus reigns on earth, not bodily, He's still bodily in heaven, but He reigns on earth through His followers. And as His followers go out and lead people to Christ... More and more people will come to faith in Christ until basically the whole world or the vast majority of the world is saved and there is a long period of time where the prosperity of Christ reigns on earth and after which Jesus returns and then you have judgment. It's an optimistic view and if we rewound the clock. 150 to 200 years ago, it would likely be the predominant theological view of American and British pastors. Why? Because they lived in the age of Victoria, when the British Empire, the sun never set, and in many of their minds, we've gone into all these countries and we've made everybody be Christian, and the world is at peace. Now, we shake our heads easy at that, but that was their day and age. And then World War I happened and blew it up. And then anybody else who held on to that kind of idea, World War II happened and eradicated it. So postmodernism is not an extremely popular view anymore. There are some who will still hold it today, and they will be of a a perspective that is more what we might call, and I'm using this in a historical way, not... um, not in some of the recent drama that terms have come. What we would call the social gospel uh, kind of theology where, um, you know, the kingdom of God is that we, we, we feed the hungry and we give a drink to the thirsty and, we, and that's all it is. This still has a lot of appeal, which means it tends to have appeal in very um, highly literate, progressive and liberal theological circles. But by and large, as you can tell, this is, there's reasons no one really holds to this anymore. Now, before you go, well, that is just absolutely absurd. Understand, Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist. And Jonathan Edwards is viewed as one of the greatest American Christians of all time, and some would argue the most brilliant American to have ever lived. And he would preach to you every Sunday out of the Hebrew or the Greek. He's also the one, if, if you're on, well, who's Jonathan Edwards? Why is Pastor not name? Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, the sermon that kicked off and launched the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards. My point isn't simply saying before in any of these we wag our fingers and that sounds ridiculous. I just want you to understand there are God-fearing men and women who are more brilliant than I will ever be who fall in all these camps, and they're not heretics. But I do disagree with Jonathan Edwards here. He's a product of his time. Postmillennial. There's the term amillennial or millennial. Simply means there is no millennium. No millennium. Now, for a long time in church history, it was, it's hard if you go back and read to kind of distinguish what's postmillennial, what's amillennial, amillennial. There, there's so much similarity. Amillennial is ultimately the simplest of all the views because it just says the thousand year reign of Jesus is just, it's just symbolism for the church age. It's not literal, we don't have to figure, there's no, It's just. it just means the day and time when the church lives, and this is how they would interpret this. Uh, you would look at um, all the different movements of Revelation and pay attention to this. So you read about Revelation 19, we see heaven open, Jesus returned, and then it says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Well, then I saw, that may not mean that this happens chronologically after what just happened, prior to it, just means this is what John saw next. So when it describes an angel coming and Satan being bound, the way we in millennials would interpret this is that Jesus' first coming, Satan's power on this earth is diminished. The church is formed and given the charge to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. Who, when Satan's bound here, what is he bound for the purpose of? To cease deceiving the nations. And the thousand years is simply just a reference to the age of the church, at the end of which Jesus returns. And then they would read through the passage and say those reigning with Jesus here, it's, it's the church. The first resurrection, they came to life and reigned with Christ. That is a spiritual resurrection, it's salvation. It's not a bodily resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection. And then when it says there's a second resurrection, that's when all the dead in Christ, not in Christ, are resurrected and brought back to life in bodily form. Believers to a glorified, resurrected body. Unbelievers to a. Um, unbelievers to a. Uh, we use the term reanimated body. It's not glorified like Jesus is. It's, it's just a reanimated version of their body now before judgment. Um, they would look at things and go, man, the, this, if, if there is a literal millennium, this is the only time it appears in all of Scripture. That's a little strange. Um, the first resurrection is spiritual, the second is physical. When you look at passages like Daniel 12 or Acts 24 that speak of the bodily resurrection, it only mentions it happening one time. The idea that there's this millennial kingdom where uh, Jesus reigns on the earth and there's believers in glorified bodies but there's still lost people in non-glorified bodies, that just is kind of bizarre. How does that work out? If Christ is really on earth reigning, how, how can people still persist in sin? These are all arguments, and some of which have validity. By the way, Martin Luther, John Calvin, J.I. Packer, who wrote Knowing God, Augustine, a lot of great saints hold to this view. You'd be interested to know that historically, there's been 2,000 years of church history. Most of church history has been post- or amillennial, not premillennial, Now the weaknesses, and I'll come back to that in a second, the weaknesses are this. One, um, it certainly seems like the then I saw an angel coming down is chronological there, which means that if in the previous passage Jesus just returned in the second coming, it would seem like here uh, this happens after that, so it can't be the church age. In addition... When you walk through and read of the two resurrections, the first resurrection, they came to life and reigned with Christ. That term, came to life, when you study and go into all depth with it, it literally means a bodily resurrection, not a spiritual thing. It's a bodily, physical resurrection coming back to life. In addition, it specifically says that those who experience the first resurrection, do not have any, uh, the second death has no power. The implication is those who experience the second resurrection, the second death does have power over them. Well, if the second resurrection is bodily resurrection, then either we don't have a bodily resurrection. Well, that's heresy. Or how do we, and so again, I'm giving you four, I have, I, there are people I love and respect who land here on the end times. I disagree with them. It's not what I'm going to teach, not how I understand. I think there's weaknesses in the argument, but I want to be clear. This is not these horrible. It's not. All of these views affirm Jesus comes back, the saints are raised bodily, and there's a new heaven and new earth we live in for eternity. Jesus wins, Satan loses, judgment happens. Those things are explicitly clear in Scripture. Those things I will fight you on. Here, I just want to be fair to try to present both sides. Now here's what's interesting. So premillennialism then, here's what premillennialism is. It means Jesus comes back pre the millennium, before the millennium. It would read this passage primarily from a literal standpoint. Jesus comes back in chapter 19, defeats the armies of the Antichrist, throws the Antichrist and false prophet in the lake of fire. Satan's bound and a spiritual abyss, an, an abyss in the spiritual plane where He is no longer able to influence the world and uh, the, the saints are resurrected bodily and they reign with Jesus on this earth for a thousand years. Now, some premillennialists will say a literal thousand years. You mark the calendar, check the day. Some will acknowledge thousand years might not be a thousand years to the second minute hour in time uh, because there is a good case in Scripture that a thousand years is frequently symbolic for a long fullness completion of time. Either of those are options here. Point is, Jesus comes back and whatever the millennial kingdom is, it is physical, literal, and on this earth. It is preceded by a literal seven-year tribulation that ends with a sudden and cataclysmic return of Jesus. The millennium will be marked by true worldwide peace. uh, Creation will experience peace from its current groaning. Uh, Even passages like Isaiah 11 and 65 mention that animals will get along with each other. There will be, in one sense, a restoration to the original aspect of creation, there's, if you start going through Scripture, and, and as I um, I mentioned this several weeks ago when we walked through it on Sunday, I wasn't going to remotely try to turn Sunday's sermon into what do you do with the millennium? You just don't have time, and that's not what you want to do with the sermon. But it's fascinating as you go through, there are so many Old Testament prophecies that when you begin to read them, and remember in prophecy, let me back up a second, when we read prophecy, and I think this is true of Revelation, I know it's true of the Old Testament, and so do you. Some of the greatest prophecies we quote at Christmas time child born of a virgin. Well, that's part of a bigger prophecy that had actual meaning back hundreds of years prior to Jesus being born. There was a dual meaning there, and some people realized it and some people didn't. We all realize it now, those of us in Christ, that in that prophecy there was something being said that was going to happen in that day, but there was also something being said that was going to happen at Christ's first coming several hundred years later. Frequently in prophecy, you will see this mixing in one passage of things that maybe happen sooner rather than later and things that are going to happen way later. And that's part of the challenge in in why we have to walk humbly with biblical prophecy. It's interesting how many Old Testament passages, a passage like uh, Psalm 72 Psalm 72. Verse 8. May he, may he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him. Let his enemies kick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The king of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also. It's talking about the reign of the righteous king, God's Messiah, on this earth, and it also speaks of him reigning on this earth while there's enemies present. Now, one way to deal with that, non millennial way, being watch is symbolic. Jesus comes back and all the enemies kicks him out. It's done. I'll give you another one, and, and I'm not saying this is exactly what it is, but I'm um, telling you it's something that I ponder. Listen to Zechariah 14. Make sure I've got it right here. Um, "'The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. Goes on. People will no longer live with. There will no longer be. Or people will live in it. There will no longer be a, a curse for Jerusalem and dwell with security. This will be the plague with which the Lord will strike the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. My point in reading there are multiple passages in the Old Testament. When you read them, some of the statements they say certainly don't apply to the way the world is right now. But they also don't seem to apply to the new heaven and new earth where there's no more death, no more pain, and no more sin or sinners. They seem to imply a time when there is peace, when Jesus reigns on this world as the messianic king, but there still is also the presence of people who oppose him. Well, those would seem to hint towards the time of a literal millennial kingdom where Jesus reigns. Uh, There are New Testament passages that seem to hint at the millennium. One of the promises to the overcomers in Revelation chapter 2 in the churches is that that they will rule and judge the nations. Well, how can you rule and judge nations if everybody of the nations who's wicked has already been judged and is in the lake of fire? Um, There's even some, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 25, Paul's talking about the resurrection body when we will be resurrected, and it makes this statement. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, after those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has all authority and rule and reign in power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When you go through there, there's a case to be made that the words used for then, then in English just means then, it can have a lot of different meanings. But the specific word in Greek does not mean then after that, or it means then after that, not then as in the same time. So Christ will be each his own Christ, the first fruits. After that, at Christ's coming, Jesus already experienced bodily resurrection. At Christ's coming, those who are Christ experience bodily resurrection. Then after that, at a later point, comes the end. After Jesus has put all his enemies under his feet. Well, that would seem to hint at a literal millennial kingdom. When you go back to Revelation 20, the binding of Satan speaks to a greater restriction of his activity than we would ever know. No one would look at the last 2,000 years of church history and go, man, Satan's really been bound. Now, in fairness, some, some do say that. I mean, if I'm being fair, those who fall in the amillennial camp, that's where they would have to fall. But that doesn't seem to fit in line with what this word says. It makes it sound as if Satan is completely removed from this plane of existence and he doesn't have any ability to impact anything. That's the language of Revelation 20. Well, that has yet to happen. Uh, When you walk through here, there's a clear distinction between the first resurrection and the second resurrection, not just in order, one happens first, the other happens second, but in quality. Those who experience the first resurrection, they don't ever perish again. Those who experience the second resurrection, they experience the second death. There seems to be a difference. The reigning with Christ, here is John is... Remember, John is writing in the church age. And he writes about the saints reigning with Christ as future, not present. So all this points... Uh, my point is to make a case that this is... Part of, there's other reasons, we don't have time. This is why I fall in the premillennial camp, which most of you are going to be familiar with because that would be kind of the average position in Southern Baptist or Bible church life for the last hundred years easily. The premillennial camp, where, where there's this literal millennial reign of Jesus on this world. With resurrected saints, I mentioned their day. You might go, "Man, that, this raises a lots of questions." I agree, and I don't have answers for a lot of them. You mean that the saints are going to rise and be in glorified bodies, and there's going to be people who don't believe in Jesus in non glorified bodies, and Jesus is going to reign, but there's still going to be sinners on the earth? How does that square? I have the same question, and I'm either wrong. Or like many things, it's just a question God chooses not to answer. There's a lot of things God's chosen not to answer. There's a lot of questions like that and a lot of other things I've got. But at the heart of it, here's what the millennial reign of Christ, and our mind all of this, what it means. One, it means that there is a great importance in the heart of God that this physical creation occupies. God created this earth, you and I as human beings, and this heavens, by heavens I don't mean heaven where God lives, I mean heaven, space, where the planets are, the stars. God created all of this through mankind in it and said it is very good. It delighted him to create it and he declared it very good. He had a purpose for it. He charged man, be fruitful and multiply, go and subdue, exercise governance, stewardship. We were never supposed to stay in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is where we met with God and, we, and, we, and He was to send us out into this world and populate and produce and steward it as we saw Him steward all of creation. Here's why I mention sometimes you go, why are we mentioning the physical is important? Here's what's interesting. The early church for the first 300 years of church history was overwhelmingly premillennial and unified in that view. You go back to the disciples of John, who were church fathers, they were premillennial. So, what happened? Several things happened. One, um, those who were looking forward to a time of peace, who'd lived under the persecution of the Roman Empire, persecution disappeared and Christianity was named the religion of the empire. There was a tectonic shift in culture that was starting to change how people viewed and understood what Scripture said. They'd never dreamed of living in a day where far from being persecuted... If you're not a Christian, you can't get a job. That changed. Something else changed. Philosophically, and and I'll... um, Everybody know who Plato is? All right, Plato the philosopher. One of his huge um, contributions in the history of philosophy is the idea of Plato's forms. And really simply, it's a philosophical idea, but it's a philosophical idea that says there's a realm, not physical, not material, of forms. And in that realm of forms is the perfect chair, is the perfect table. You and I live in the realm of things, the physical realm. We might have the idea of that perfect chair... But the physical chair we make is not perfect. It's just a a broken reflection. Now, you can already tell, very easily morph that with some Christian biblical ideas. There's a heavenly tabernacle. The earthly tabernacle is a copy of it. Heaven, things are perfect. Earthly, things are broken. Here's what that idea, though, did not just within Christianity. It did this in culture, but it also crept over into Christianity. Here's what it did that which is spiritual is more important and valuable than that which is physical now that idea can manifest itself in a lot of different ways that which is spiritual my heart the things i feel internally my kindness my love my compassion my those things are important what i eat what i drink what i do with this body doesn't matter so I either view this body with a disdain, that was one side, and I treat it harshly and I, I'm, I'm like a monk and I push it to its limits and i all in the name of pursuing spiritual perfection, or there's the other side. What I do with this body doesn't matter, so I can live it up. I can do immorality all day long because my body doesn't matter. It impacts things ethically. It impacts things Um. Man, that work the pastor does, that's sacred work. He's dealing with people's hearts. My job as an accountant crunching numbers on a spreadsheet, not sacred. False. (laughs) My job is sacred, and if you're an accountant, your job is sacred. God has placed you there to do His sacred work in that form. It creates this dualism. Here's what's fascinating. And so, what ultimately happened when you start to the fourth century and you start with Augustine, there is this movement towards amillennial and postmillennialism, at the heart of which is really this the physical doesn't matter. There's other ways we do this. As long as my heart with God is good, I can be a glutton or an anorexic. No, gluttony is a sin. Why? Because God cares about my body just as much as my soul which is why I get a body back at the end of all time. And I don't just get a body back. I get a perfect body that the early church thought would be 33 years old because it's the same age as Jesus. But not how you were at 33 or how I was at 33, a perfect 33. And not a body that would... The millennium reminds us that God cares about all of creation, physical and spiritual. The millennium reminds us that God is faithful to fulfill every word of His promises. When you read some of these promises to to Israel in the Old Testament... It's not like God goes, I know I promised you, Israel, I know I promised you that you would experience the reign of the Messianic King on this land and this world, but but you know what? This thing is just so broken, we're just going to wipe it out and I'll make a whole new thing. No, God is like, I promised it would happen. I will bring about every last word I promised, including my Messiah King, Jesus Christ, reigning in this Jerusalem on this earth over this world, restoring it to its original purpose since it never got to be fulfilled. That's a God who is faithful and true to every last I and every last T, who, who follows every last period. If he says it, he's going to do it and he brings it to completion. Woo! You and I can buy his word. We, we can take him at his word. He's going to finish it. It means we experience a, a kind of vindication. If we really reign with Jesus on this world, all the things right now you may suffer loss for the sake of Jesus in Pflugerville, Texas there's going to come a day where you'll stand again on this world and you'll be vindicated for all of it. Wow. It reveals the emphatic nature of Jesus' victory. Jesus doesn't just come back and go, man, here's this broken world that's been ruled over by, and, and, and by Satan and broken by, by sinners. We're just going to flush it. Nope, his victory is so sure he's going to come back and he's going to reign on this field. It'd be like this. It's. It's not. There was maybe this is. I have. I have had a, an attempt at an example for this for a, for weeks now, and I've not felt comfortable. And right now in this moment, this just popped in, and this may finally be it, or I may just regret it after I say it. But I'm gonna say it anyways. Growing up, I w- there was robust playground basketball when I was in high school. Well, I mean, my playground basketball is you would go up on a Monday night, a Friday night up to the local park, and there would be hardcore basketball played. You don't call fouls unless there's blood, and it- you just play for hours. One night I was up at, a- at the park by my house, and in the park by my house at that time, it was one of the, the best spots to play. Well, one night we're up there and we're playing and there's kind of a group of guys you just get to know over time and there's probably about 20, 30 guys and, and not all are from the neighborhood. This is just where they come to play. And, and one night we're playing and, and these, these guys who you could tell was like, I'm like, they scare me, came up and they came in and they, they were talking this and that and they came, they played a couple games, beat everybody. And it was interesting because the guys who were really good, you could tell just kind of let them win and then they left it's like why why did you and they said listen we know those guys they go to every court they want to win a few games so everybody knows they're the kings but if you'll just let them win they'll get out of here now this is where that analogy falls apart jesus is not like the character of those guys but the point was those guys were going to go hit every court so everybody knew they were the kings They weren't just going to go, well, we run this court and we could come to your court and beat you there. No, we're going to go to every last place. Jesus' victory is so absolutely sure this world will experience his victory and his reign, which this world's never gotten to experience since the very, very beginning In, in a very direct way. Obviously, Jesus still reigns over this world right now, but we mean like the experience of the peace his reign brings. So where do we fall on this? post millennialism doesn't explain the fact that so much of Scripture says before Jesus' return, the world gets worse, not better. Uh, Nowhere in, in the Great Commission where we're told to go share the gospel with the whole world is there ever a guarantee the whole world comes to faith. Not only that, Jesus implies narrow is the way and few are those who find it. Just because the Bible only mentions this thousand-year period, specifically in chapter 20 of Revelation, doesn't mean that because it's only mentioned once, it's not literal. The Bible can mention anything once, and if it's true, it's true, even if it's only mentioned once. There's other passages that do seem to support it. The amillennial understanding of Revelation 20, 1 through 10, has major problems because it has to be taking place right now, and in my opinion, when you read it, you can't see it take place right now. So here then, to add to our timeline, Jesus comes back. Second coming. And then you're going to have a millennial kingdom where he reigns with his saints prior to the final battle. This is my judge's gavel, the final judgment, and then we'll do a star for new heaven and new earth. Now we got questions about this gap, cover those next week, but before you go, Well, understand, this is where I think Scripture is pointing us toward. But I want to reiterate, just because this is where I land and I think the evidence is heavily in favor of this does not mean that someone who's amillennial am I going to look at and go, well, you idiot, you don't know a thing. That would be unbelievably arrogant of me. Because I could also be wrong. And it could be neither amillennial nor premillennial. It could be something that we've all missed. The reality is, Scripture says in Daniel, the closer we get to all of it happening, the more clear it will become. And so we must all be humble. There are men who I respect. There are pastors I listen to. One of the best commentaries that I have read as we've walked through Revelation is from a guy who is, by and large, amillennial. And he's more thorough than anybody I've ever read at showing you how the Old Testament speaks into what's going on in Daniel. So I want to be clear. This is where I land. This is when you hear me walk through. and this is, this is where it's coming from. I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm presenting to you. This is why I think it's there. And this is why I think ultimately it's important. It shows that God gives weight to this physical creation. He fulfills every word of his promise and nothing will be let out. There's a vindication we'll receive in this, in this world. And it and shows the emphatic reality of his victory. Man, those are great truths. And that's what, when you walk through this passage on Sunday, what we came to. Great truths. So when you hear someone say, I'm post mill, I'm pre mill, I'm on mill, now you know what they're saying. Now, not fully though, because here's where I'm going to tease you for next week. In the pre ca- millennial camp, there's multiple different kinds of premillennials, millennials. And that directly impacts this gap of how do we understand the nature of the tribulation, the seven years, and when, did, when does the church get removed? And that we'll do next week. It's a perfect segue. Couldn't have planned it better. Appreciate you being here, church family. Excited for Sunday. We're going we're gonna to begin walking through um, the best stuff in all of Scripture outside of salvation. What I mean by that is it's the end aim of all salvation, which is behold, I make all things new. New heaven and new earth coming down. So excited to walk through that starting this Sunday. And let me pray. And um, uh, just grateful for all of you. Have a wonderful rest of your Valentine's Day, whatever you choose to do with it. And um, thank you for finding darker colored markers that those can hopefully see. Jesus, thank you for tonight. And, Lord, we just praise you that though there are things we might debate and we do our best job and, Holy Spirit, we humble ourselves and we pray and we, we seek and we ask. Um, we praise you, Lord, that at the end of the day what we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt is, Jesus, you left to prepare a place for us and you are coming back to take us to that place. That you do win because you've already won. That for those of us in you are though we don't know what the course and timeline of our life will hold, we know our destiny is absolutely secure. And what you have waiting for us is so extraordinary that no eye has seen. We could take the most beautiful landscape, the most majestic picture of all of the universe and the stars. Whatever we could see with our eyes, that would be the most breathtaking, wondrous thing we have seen. And you say, no eye has seen and no mind has comprehended. We could take the best of all of our imagination. We could use all of our AI and computers to, to draw it out to create the most beautiful, vivid thing we could possibly imagine. Lord, you say that what is coming for those of us in you No eye has seen and no mind has comprehended the unbelievable glory you have waiting for your saints. Lord, may that give us hope and joy. You love us, Lord. You care for us. You preserve us. You seal us. And you come back for us. And Lord, we praise you. So thank you for the opportunity to study your word Jesus, we just praise you, and it's in your name I pray, amen.